On this episode of AvTalk, we sit down for an extended conversation with John Ostrauer, CNN's aviation editor, to discuss the recent tie-up between Airbus and the C-Series, and what it might mean for the future of the C-Series and for other aircraft manufacturers. You need to partner up. No one aircraft manufacturer can do it by themselves anymore. Plus, Jason heads to Toulouse for the A330neo's first flight, and an Air Berlin pilot's farewell gives us a chance to check in on the airline one final time. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of AvTalk. We're back. I'm Ian Pechnik here with, as always... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, everybody. And we are back. And and you're back. I'm back again. From from a, a, quick, trip to, uh, a quick trip to France. So quick. Well, longer than I expected it to be. But as per usual with these first flights, Airbus planned the first flight of the A330neo and gave everyone about 24 hours notice. So thankfully, I was able to get out there on extremely short notice. I packed on Wednesday, sorry, Monday night, thinking I could potentially go. Woke up the next day, no reservations, nothing booked. By 2 p.m., finally got a confirmation. And by 9 p.m., I was on a flight to Toulouse via Paris and went out there for the first flight of the 330neo. And Ian, would you believe it? It, it, it flew. It flew. Wow. Well, there you go. Then first flight accomplished, time to go home. Almost. Probably it's okay for me to go home, but probably not the engineers and, you know, test pilots and all that. So some quick thoughts on that, I guess, to to start off the podcast. The 330neo, more or less an A330 with new engines, a fancy new interior, the airspace interior that they have also launched on the 320. But the biggest selling point is the new engines, I think, and the fancy new winglets, which look pretty cool. Oh, and also the um, blacked-out uh, eye mask that the A350 wears. Every, everyone gets an eye mask. I like that. But it really didn't... How quiet the 330neo is wasn't really driven home until a couple hours after the first flight when an A330 Classic, I guess we would call them now, took off. And it was remarkably loud to the point where we all looked out the window and said, like, what the hell is that? Oh, it's just an A330. But it is kind of amazing how far they've come in engine technology in a couple of years that the, the Neo whispered its way out. A lot like pretty much everything else at Airbus and Boeing these days with these geared turbofans and advanced technologies that they have that the a320 is silent the a350 is silent the a380 is silent and then you finally get one of these older aircraft like the 330 and and you know it when they take off (laughs) oh that that's that's what that is yeah but it was fun i had a little mix up on on the way home i was leaving to lose 2 p.m on klm transferring in Amsterdam to a a 787-9 which i was really excited to fly home ironically from an airbus event and maybe it was karma for flying boeing after an airbus event but we were an hour and a half late into amsterdam because of weather and i missed my connection and had to stay overnight but there are worse places in the world to have to spend an overnight than amsterdam this is true this is true and and you you did make it home so that you've got that going for you i did i did so back to am. the back to the a330neo which is I guess in, in official designation, there's the A330-900, which is what flew the first flight. And then there will be a shorter A330-800. Airbus is marketing will there, though? A, an A330-800. I mean, you know, the actual existence is sure still yet to be determined. <laughs> it doesn't have many no. orders. And it, it, the main order now is with, is with Hawaiian. And even they're like, eh, maybe. Maybe we'll buy something else. But what Airbus is saying so far is that, like you said, it's a quieter. Airbus says it'll have half the noise footprint compared to a a current engine A330. The new engines are Rolls-Royce Trent 7000s, and that takes some of the technology from the, the XWB that's on the A350, a new composite nacelle. A new titanium pylon. Anytime you can say new titanium pylon, I, I, I think mean, it's a obviously good thing. it's got that. So the the engine area is new, and then the wings are are longer, three meters longer, and and so they they get the I love it, and some people don't, but the, that A three fifty style 
what Airbus calls them, the sharklets. The raccoon look. Whatever. And it also gets the raccoon look, which I'm sure why not. I like it. I mean, I don't dislike it, but I, I, I don't understand what the the impetus to to raccoonize all of the all of the new aircraft. I'm, I'm not sure what that's all about, but I'll go with it if it makes people happy. Sure, 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 sure. And, and as far as airlines are concerned, ten more seats, so that's always nice. And then 400 plus nautical miles compared to the current A330, and it also have an increased maximum takeoff weight. I forget exactly what number they're they're trying to shoot. Well, not not yet. The the takeoff weight is still the two forty two ton from the current three thirty, but eventually, eventually they will bump it up to two fifty something. I think yeah. They're aiming two uh, two fifty one. Right. I think it was something like that. So this plane will be flying. Well, it'll be flying in tests up through next year, and then they're they're hoping for certification mid twenty eighteen. So new planes for everybody. Hooray! Hooray! Not so new planes and our regular segment, our last regular Air Berlin update. Maybe. You never know with this airline. <laughs> There's always something to talk about with Air Berlin. In the 11th hour, they're going to come back. No, no, we were just kidding. We're buying 500 A330 800s. Oh. And we're staying in business. No, not going to happen. So, I feel like we've been talking about Air Berlin since like our Four or first five episodes now? podcast. I, I don't know. But the end is near for real this time. The final flight should be October 27th. That's this coming Friday. We're recording on the 24th. They're, the final flight will be on the 27th. And, and what route is it? Do you happen to know? I believe it's Munich, Berlin, but I'm not exactly 100% sure on that. So, that's it on the 27th for real. For real this time, no more Air Berlin flights. No more. But their last long-haul flight coming into Berlin, they pilots did a little something, didn't they? Was it Berlin or, or Dusseldorf? Was it Dusseldorf? Yeah. I th- actually, I think you're right. It was Dusseldorf. Either way, they did something they probably shouldn't have. Well, they ended up getting suspended for it. Not that it really matters because there are no more planes to fly in Air Berlin. But Ian, tell us a little about what the pilots did. So the flight approached. We, we should begin by pointing out that at no time was anyone's safety in jeopardy. The pilots were flying their last flight, Air Berlin's last long-haul flight in A330. And instead of landing as one normally does at your destination airport, taxiing and pulling into the gate, they decided that it would be a good idea to say goodbye to the airline, goodbye to the Air Berlin A330 with a low pass and a go around. And they coordinated everything with air traffic control. The aircraft performed the way it was supposed to. The pilots performed the way they were supposed to. It kind of got blown out of proportion. And I think that's where the, the suspension came from where Air Berlin may have felt that they had to do something because of, I think, the media attention it got. Yeah, I mean, I can see both sides of the argument. I'm really not okay with what they did. It was kind of a low-speed, high-bank turn over the terminal area rather than a regular go-around, which would have you you know, fly straight out and then eventually turn and come back around. I'm kind of not okay with doing that, with, with paying passengers on board that might have some fear of flying or, or who knows what but i don't know I, I'm, I'm torn it looked cool but i don't think it was super appropriate do i think they were in danger no but should they have done it i also think probably no but doesn't matter now no more air balloon to worry about i come down on the it was a safe maneuver it was coordinated with air traffic control it's a nice way of saying goodbye to the airline so i I'm willing to, I think, give it a little more, a little more room. But I can see your side of the argument for sure. So what's next? Yeah, <laughs> Air Berlin's done. We're moving on. Barring any major news, this is our last Air Berlin update. I think we should take a quick break and get John Ostrar on the line so that we can talk a little bit more about pretty much the major, major news that has happened since we last recorded. And you didn't say major enough. Uh, you're underselling it. I, I think I am. I have to have somewhere to go in the, in the actual you know, interview. That's true. But we're going to talk about 
Airbus and the Bombardier C-Series program getting together in the wake of a lot of lead up to to this particular event. And so we're going to talk with John Oster, our CNN's aviation editor, about what happened, why it happened, what's going to happen, and and go from there. So stay tuned after a quick break, and we'll be back. And we are back with John Ostrauer, CNN's aviation editor. John's joining the program for the second time. Last time he was on, we talked at length about Chinese aviation and the Comac C919, which recently had its second flight ever. So next time John's on in four or five episodes, it may have flown a third time. This time we've invited John back to talk about the recent news with Airbus and the Bombardier C-Series and what's happening there. John, welcome back to the program. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So to provide, I mean, we could spend probably four or five episodes talking about how we got here, but can you give us a kind of a small synopsis about how we got to Airbus and Bombardier getting together and why that kind of came about. Absolutely. So <laughs> this has been a, a long time coming. So about two years ago, when Bombardier was in the midst of sort of its most troubled period, you know, financially, it wasn't clear that the program was going was gonna to really allow the company to survive. There were some leadership changes. There were some strategy changes. There was major top-to-bottom reassessments uh, across the board. The airplane wasn't done yet. And in the midst of that, Airbus and Bombardier started having talks around you know, maybe potentially doing some type of partnership between Airbus and the C-Series program. It's important to note C-Series program versus Bombardier. And since then, or I should say in the, the minutes that followed that the news of those talks breaking back in October, I think it was early October of 2015, the deal fell apart because the moment it became public, Airbus walked away. They said, we're not doing it. We're done. This time, two years later, we have the CS100 and 300 in service. The airplane is on a supposedly much more stable footing. The company is has sort of rethought its, its, its structure. You know, you've got significant investment from Quebec, federal government, which had created a big problem in itself around the tariffs that Boeing alleged were harming them. And here we go, you know, enter summer 2017. There's a, a restart of talks or official restart of talks. There may have been some approaches before that over the summer. And now, you know, a, a mere two months and change later, we have a 50.01% deal that gives the C-Series program to Airbus for, I think, one euro up front. So Air Aviation, we call it the deal of the century. We now have a tie-up between the newest single-aisle aircraft in the world, easily the, the most advanced single-aisle aircraft in the world, and the one half of the jetliner duopoly. So here we are trying to pick up the pieces, trying to wrap our heads around what this means for Airbus, what this means for Bombardier, what this means for Boeing, what this means for, for Embraer. So that is the recent history. Do you think Airbus was the only other company out there that was sniffing around Bombardier? Could have Bombardier ended up with Boeing even, or maybe a Chinese company, maybe Comac would have been interested? So over the summer, as Boeing, sorry, Airbus and Bombardier were talking, Boeing was approached as well by Bombardier to do a similar type of arrangement. And Boeing said no. And they, they called it off and walked away. And... That's sort of my piece of the uh, of the reporting. The Globe and Mail kind of echoed a lot of these themes and said that Boeing had looked at at the C series and and concluded that it was a dead a dead program, or it eventually died and walked away. Throughout the last few months, in parallel with the Airbus discussions, Bombardier has been talking to China also. And actually, on the on the morning that the news broke. I'm sorry, the, the, the evening that the news broke here in Seattle, the good money inside Boeing was that China was going to be taking the C-Series program, not Airbus. So there was a bit of a, a scramble to try and dissect what that all means. And, and, and from 
everything that I understand, that's still very much going on in terms of understanding how you navigate a newly reformed competitive landscape, whether you're in Brazil or the U.S., or whether you're even China and you thought you might might have a chance at, at bringing the C-Series under Comac. So there were a lot of players involved in this. And you know what, what's ultimately clear was that Bombardier has wanted to take a big step away from being a commercial aircraft manufacturer by, by bringing in another, another player here. Well, they've certainly gotten to that point by now. Do you think that this deal with Airbus would have even been in consideration? Would we be talking about this had Boeing not lobbied for this, I guess, the the import tax that is now at this 300% number? If that hadn't happened, do you think Bombardier would still be an independent company doing its own thing? Or would they still want to tie up with someone bigger than them? So one half is, would they have done a deal? Or would there have been conversations between Bombardier and some other entity? The answer to that, I think, is, is, is yes, based on everything that I understand. The, the big if here and the big thing that changed was the final assembly line in Mobile. And from what I understand, that is a direct – there's a direct connection between that and the tariffs, the 300% tariffs that have been proposed by the Commerce Department. So I think Bombardier has been heading in this direction for for a long time. Certainly when you saw the the structure of the C-Series program, when Quebec got about 49%, 49 49.5% of the program. So clearly there's been a move away to try and get other people involved, other stakeholders involved, even if the only aircraft manufacturer in that particular arrangement was Bombardier. So now here we are, we're going to eventually, assuming the deal goes through, that's still a big if, we're going to see C-Series aircraft built alongside A320s and A321s down in Mobile, which is, you know, I think, Jason, you, you put it best. We said, you know, if you had that on your bingo card, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I mentioned to, you know, I, th- I think it was on Twitter, if, 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 you, if you had Mobile Alabama as the big winner in the Boeing versus Bombardier fight, I mean, that come collect your prize. Incredibly, yeah, incredibly long money, and and yet here we are talking about, you know, I, I mean, it was when Airbus first announced that they were opening the mobile plant, it was like, oh, okay, that that you know, interesting, that makes sense. There's a big market here, and then to to use that, I guess, is kind of, I mean, I have an answer in my mind. How incredibly appetizing was that to Bombardier? As part of the deal. I mean, because the U.S. market, I mean, for the C-Series, I guess lives or dies whether or not you can build it in the country and avoid, you know, avoid the tariffs. Well, I think the the, the, the broader th- point here about the, the line is that you need access to the U.S. market. And you can't – with an aircraft this size, the largest – you know, China's the largest single market and growth market over the next 20 years – and, and the U.S. as a replacement market is enormous too. I mean, you can't, as an established player, having your aircraft established in the U.S., flying around the U.S. with the maintenance presence that that brings, with the pilot pool that that brings, establishes an airplane globally. And it establishes it financially also in terms of, you know, whether it's lessers or even the financial community backing backing deals. So you see an ecosystem that kind of gets created around that. So having access to the U.S. market was always going to be a necessity for this airplane. The line itself is a huge boon for Airbus, more than, than, more than it is for Bombardier, certainly, because Airbus is able to expand Mobile and get its money's worth out of its investment there and also, you know, end up in, in U.S. fleets. And it's sort of a, a double hit. But but I, I will say the one thing, this big step back from all this is that we're not totally sure that the tariffs are going to be able to be avoided by building in the, in, in the U.S. Ultimately, Boeing's point is that they don't believe that the airplane can avoid these tariffs just by being built in the U.S. because the countervailing duties, the subsidies, quote unquote, are still in place. And if it's a subsidized company that was penalized before the plane was built in the in the U.S. and now it's going to be built in the U.S., the subsidies still exist and still do harm to the market, no matter where they're where they're being assembled. So it it, it there's still an open legal question there, and we should definitely assume that 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 Boeing is going to stick to its guns on this argument. And it's really you know a question of whether or not their relationship 
with the Trump administration and the and the Department of Commerce is able to deliver them the, the victory that I think they're hoping for. It'll be an interesting thing to see if if Boeing really does go down this road because as we all know that 787 is vastly produced with foreign parts that are imported and then it is just simply assembled in the United States. So is this really a, a, a road Boeing is going to want to go down, you think? Absolutely. I mean, they, they certainly have have spent a lot of, of time and energy pushing this case in Washington, D.C. to, you know, to, to keep the C-Series out of the U.S. market. And, you know, the, when, you, when you raise the specter of the 787, well, you say, you know, by virtue of the fact that it's not primarily made in the USA, quote unquote, based on fabrication, you know, they say, well, okay, you know, it's not – it's not it's it's not being accused of of dumping or the or the or, or subsidies that C series is so so it's a moot point and despite the fact that you know by that by their own logic that you could call the seven eight seven an Italian or Japanese airplane and it's not the key differentiator from from their perspective as I understand it is that they believe that because the accusation has been leveled at C series legally and not at the 787 that it's that that one is subject to it and the other isn't by virtue of not having been accused <laughs> so it's extremely tortured legal argument I think is probably the right way to look at it but certainly they are they're passionate believers in their case that you know that Bombardier is still ultimately guilty, quote unquote, of of dumping the C series in the U.S. No matter where it's built. Well, and, and then I, I guess we're we're stepping. If if we want to step back one more step, is that the determination of the tariffs? It's not final yet. I mean, so that that three hundred percent number is is still subject to change. I mean, how much it changes, I guess, depends on how receptive, you know, further action is to. Is this a dumping action? And and what gets me is that the the argument that you know it doesn't matter that the C the C series doesn't compete against a Boeing aircraft. Yeah, the the competitive side by side is is I mean the irony of all of this is that Boeing will get a chance to find out whether or not the C series is a competing aircraft with the seven thirty seven as it goes up against Airbus in deals around the world. I mean. Airbus is going to package these airplanes together and there is going to be a, a way of finding it, finding that out pretty quick. And if airlines want an airplane that size, and if they, if they, if they believe that they have been given a, a fair equivalent product by Boeing, they're going to make a decision. And that might include C-series aircraft. So Boeing is, is very much going to, going to find out whether or not it really does compete, regardless of whatever legal argument they've, they've made prior to this when, you know, they were offering used E-190s at Delta. So it's, we found ourselves in a, in, a, in one of the more interesting <laughs> landscapes for selling commercial aircraft. And heck, this deal isn't done yet. And as long as that's the case, we're not going to know how this all plays out until probably second half of 2018 and beyond. So my very next question was going to be, now that Bombardier has the backing of Airbus, the sales backing, the engineering backing, the, the support and technical troubleshooting prowess of Airbus, are we going to see additional airlines come out of the woodwork to buy the C-Series? And just right now, I'm reading via Twitter on Egypt's Daily News, which I'm told is the only daily independent newspaper in English in Egypt, that Egypt Air is ordering 12 CS300 aircraft. Now that's super, super, super unconfirmed, but orders are starting to already come in from places I would not have expected in the past. Yeah, and actually that that's an interesting one because I, I think those airplanes are, are, are going to be used as replacement to their Embraer fleet, not their Boeings. And I think that that same article talks about getting additional A320s as well. Right, it does. You know, I think we're going to see an interesting shift in the landscape here. I think that that it, you know, again, Airbus, the Airbus sales teams can't actually touch the airplane in sales campaigns until, well, at least not directly, until the deal closes. So, you know, it, obviously this is looming out there. You know, I, I think the question is, you know, what of, you know, Spirit Airlines? What of JetBlue, who have been publicly supportive 
of Embraer and and their position on the on the, the tariff case. You know, clearly from the perspective of you know wanting additional choices, but you know they've got large Airbus fleets already. Of course, JetBlue has the E190s, and you know there's a, a we're going to see how this plays out pretty pretty quickly, and whether or not you know Sun Country also came out. You know, as they, you know, as, as in support of, of Bombardier on this one. So you see, you know, U.S. airlines sort of, you know, smaller U.S. airlines going in a, in a, in a given direction. Obviously, we know Delta's position on the matter. But, you know, I think it's going to be, you know, the C-Series struggled to sell largely because it was up against the duopoly. And Boeing and Airbus were beating the crap out of it repeatedly both in the press and behind the scenes at, at, at airlines. And now what we're going to see here is whether or not the, the C-Series gets a fair hearing when it's Boeing versus Airbus. And, it, you know, as a question about the market, you know, now that one of your fiercest competitors becomes an ally, the dynamic is going to, is theoretically going to shift significantly. And we're, and we're going to see that play out. So, you know, it's, it, is there a market for an airplane this size? Well, we're about to find out. So where do you reckon this leaves the other manufacturers of the smaller but larger regional jets? Embraer, Mitsubishi with their regional jet that may or may not ever happen. Do you see them tying up or partnering with an Airbus or a Boeing? Or will they, do you think, stick it out on their own? Well, a a senior industry official, I'll just leave it at that for attribution, made a very, very interesting comment to me about how Boeing and Airbus tend to react to one another. And if you look at move for move, they're pretty closely matched. You know, you've, okay, so Airbus puts new engines on the 320. Boeing does the same for the 737, does not replace the airplane. And they've closely matched themselves move for move. And in that same vein, you know, you look at, at game theory, if this particular executive was, was talking about, said that, you know, you mirror the moves of your opponent. And by that expectation, there was a, a view ultimately toward a closer partnership, joint venture, some type of cooperation, formal cooperation between Boeing and Embraer. And within that, there has been a long history of cooperation between the two already. I mean, the, the relationship between U.S. aircraft manufacturers and Embraer goes back decades. I mean, they, I think someone was telling me that the MD-11's flap fairing, I think, was actually designed and built by Embraer. And part of getting on the program was a big portion of in-kind labor, engineering labor that they donated to actually design the part. And so within that, you know, it goes back ages. I mean, they were Boeing has more recently worked with them on marketing the KC-390 in the U.S. There was going to be a potentially a, a, a you know parts-built by Embraer for the F-18 Super Hornet for the Brazilian Air Force. There's you know the eco demonstrator that that they did several years back together, or I think it was actually just last year. So you know you see this kind of reoccurring theme of, of Boeing and Embraer getting closer and closer and closer in a genuine camaraderie between the two. That a lot of people keep telling me, you know, in this business is more than just a a casual relationship really is a more of a cultural compatibility around aircraft development and air and, and air and how you approach, you know, running your business. So it's going to be, it's going to be something that, that I will certainly be watching very, very closely for based on the past history and what, what is expected in the future. But I don't think anyone should rule out one way or another that, that these two won't be getting closer and closer. Does that lead us to ruling out, Mitsubishi entirely. I mean, the the program's been struggling and struggling and struggling, and the order book is not very big. I mean, at some point, do they just look at the program and go, well, I mean, can we keep this going? It's a different type of product line. So I think if you're if you're reacting to Airbus and Bombardier, you look at a model for model type approach. And Mitsubishi has its hands full just getting an airplane done right now. And you're not going to see that done until 2020. You know, there, there's plenty of scenarios that see a, a joint venture partnership on an NMA 797. And then when you replace the 737, you, you do that one with the Japanese. 
and, and, and something, something like that. You know, so there, there are any number of scenarios where there might be, it might be multiple bites at the apple rather than just one. But you begin to see these axes of cooperation firming up. You know, you, we, we see China and Russia doing the CR929 together. And if I only come away with one interesting takeaway from, from the last week's events, it's that you need to partner up. It's you that no one aircraft manufacturer can do it by themselves anymore. And with that comes a lot of state support around, you know, the political backing and, and, and governmental regulatory structure that comes with that. So we've entered an age where it's not just individual companies competing with each other. It's now it's now like nations teaming up to own a piece of this pie. And that's going to be probably one of the, the most influential pieces as we head into like the you know mid 21st century when it comes to the jetliner business it's it's really a a, a a nation nation versus nation versus nation game now well and and certainly last time last time you were on the program we we talked extensively about the the Comex C919 and we talked about how large and and you touched on this a few minutes ago how large and important the the chinese market is going to be for the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years as as people begin to fly a lot more there. And with the C-Series kind of similar size to the, to the C919, does that enter into anything in the Chinese market or, or is the C919 in such a good position that because of its you know domestic – what's the word I'm looking here? Just – the fact that it is Chinese, does that leave it in such a good position that the C-Series, even with Airbus, doesn't really enter into the market? Well, so so remember, the Comac was in the mix to to take a stake of, of the C-Series. So it would clearly, from the Chinese perspective, was an airplane that complemented what, what they were doing. You know, having a, a CS-100, you know, essentially in between the ARJ21 and the C919 and then above that the CR929 you'd have a you know the Canadian family right right there underneath the, the 919 but there there are two things that that, that that took place here so the center fuselage of the, of the C series is built in in China now at Shenyang Aircraft Company and that's the the largest portion of i believe any western made aircraft that's built in China. And that's actually a, a, a unit of, if, I, if my my Chinese aircraft industry structure ha- knowledge hasn't changed considerably since my understanding of this one, is that SAC is a unit of AVIC, not COMAC. And that has some interesting political ramifications within China around where Bombardier was able to develop the airplane in the first place, whereas Comac was sort of the the golden child of Chinese aviation, whereas Avic was sort of the the old structure. What Airbus just did by by teaming up with Bombardier is gets a significant manufacturing presence on a not just the final assembly level like they have in Tianjin, but a a major aircraft manufacturing component level structural level presence now with what they're doing with with Shenyang. So that changes the dynamic a bit. But I went back in the last week thinking about just the Chinese market, and I looked at where have the 737-700s gone? What airplanes of that size? And, well, in the last five years, every single 737-700 delivery has gone to one place, and that's the China. Southwest didn't take any. WestJet didn't take any. Entirely to China, China and Chinese lessers. Well, Southwest isn't taking any new, but they're certainly taking them used from anywhere they can get them at this point, and that being them being Southwest. Exactly, exactly. So because, you know, an airplane that size is cheaper used if you're a U.S. airline. The significance of the fact that the Chinese are still interested in this airplane, and they're the only ones who are interested in this airplane, tells me that, number one, the Chinese historically don't buy used airplanes part and parcel of the overall strategy to grow China is to use newly built aircraft from Boeing, Airbus, Embraer, Bombardier. And that's sort of the core of the strategy. So within that, clearly there's a demand for airplanes this size in China. And because they're great at flying into places at really high altitude in, in, in Tibet, for example, where you need an airplane that can perform at a 14,000 foot takeoff altitude, which is an astonishing 
a bit of performance out of a out of a commercial airplane, and the C series can do that. So clearly, there's a there's a market in China for this size airplane. So you know, naturally, we're going to see more and more orders there. And Bombardier has said that that probably you know in the next several months coming up, we're going to finally see those deals firm up. China's going to kind of figure out what it wants to do politically, and they have done so in the last week with a new party structure. So again, once that's out of the way, you start to see a lot of these these other deals begin to take shape for the next five-year plan. Right. And ironically, you mentioned that China doesn't take used aircraft typically, and Southwest, as I mentioned, is taking primarily used aircraft. And this year alone in 2017, Southwest has taken no fewer than six used 737-700s previously operated by Chinese airlines. Exactly. Exactly. So you you look at you look at where these airplanes are going, and you know those those airplanes are being replaced by seven three seven maxes now. I mean, there's and you know an A three twenty neos. You know we've we've seen the first deliveries or are about to see the first delivery to China. I think I, that airplane was in flight testing, wrapping up just the other day. By the time this publishes, I'm sure that it will have probably delivered. But you've got but again, you know that that as those spool out. I mean, you actually start to talk about a Chinese aircraft replacement market, which is in a which is something that we we haven't in this business actually had a chance to even ponder until now. But you know, it's it, the irony is they're coming back to the U.S. They really are. I feel like we forgot to mention the Sukhoi Superjet, the SSJ one hundred. Does that have any place in the market at this point, or is it just such a misfit that we just simply forgot to mention it? That's a great question. As the MC-21 begins to become more mature and actually wraps up flight testing, and obviously they're still in the, in the first, first inning, first second inning of flight testing, that airplane, as Russia is able to develop more of a family approach, I, you, know, you might see more traction there. I mean, I know that they've been working on things like winglets for the airplane to make it more efficient. But I think over time, you know, it's it, certainly the the Russian government has given it its its you know virtually unlimited backing. I mean, it, it Vladimir Putin is a huge fan of that airplane, and it when Putin and Berlusconi in Italy were as close as they were politically, that really reinforced the ties between then Alenia and Sukhoi. Berlusconi's gone; that partnership has effectively fallen apart in its entirety. But again, you've got the political backing of the Russian government. And as long as that's the case, I don't see it going anywhere. So we talked about, you know, you said it's important to kind of split off the C-Series from the rest of Bombardier and not talk about Bombardier as a whole. But let's talk about the rest of Bombardier. With the C-Series kind of basically going off to Airbus, where does that leave Bombardier? Where is their place in the market? Are they still a regional player or do they just go ahead and say, you know what, we make really great business jets and that's what we do? Bombardier has been on a market exit path for a long time on the commercial. And not just an aircraft. Exactly. Exactly. On trains, they've been selling off units for for a long time and how they've approached their supplier arrangements in the, in the, in the same regard, how they approach their aerostructures business as splitting it off its own PL. There, I mean, there's clearly a, a behavior that we're seeing here that inclines them away from being a part of the commercial aircraft market. And the question is, as Airbus takes over C-Series second half of next year, does it cause airlines in the US, elsewhere, to pause at Q400 purchases, CRJ purchases, just by virtue of not knowing where these programs are going to be. Are they going to be sunsetted? Are they going to be sold off? And so, you know, I wonder is, and this is just me thinking aloud here, you know, is Bombardier going to get less certainty and less clarity on its regional and turboprop business, even as it gains more certainty on the C-Series? So I think it's going to be a, a big question, but, you know, everyone in kind of where things stand right now is expecting, you know, a second and third shoe to drop around the CRJ and Q400 lines one way or another. Yeah, that, that's a s- super interesting question because Bombardier is definitely not just letting the CRJ line anguish. They've actually doubled up on their efforts to 
I believe, refresh the interior. Airbus has airspace. Boeing has the sky interior. And Bombardier just recently did the atmosphere interior for the CRJ series. So they're they're not just sitting by and, and hoping they get sales. They're actually still actively pushing them. Yeah, and, and as long as scope clause stays where it is, and effectively, you know, being a a thorn in the side of of the E2 and Mitsubishi, there is still going to be demand for E175s and CRJ900s in the US. The question is, can you get the pilots to fly them, which is an entirely separate podcast. But <laughs> but yeah, there, there's those are airplanes that are going to be needed in the US, without a doubt. So all of this has really answered all of our questions. And uh, it's very simple, very cut and dry. And uh, we, we've solved everything here. Exactly. Where, where do we pick up our metal? Yeah, exactly. I feel like, it, you know, the, each turn in this, I think it's fair to call it a saga, has opened up kind of just another branch of choose your own aviation adventure. I mean, every every turn, it, there, there have been no answers. It's only just now there are different questions. And so how long this plays out over the next 12, 24, 36 months, however long it takes to close these deals and get resolution on, on tariffs and things like that, it's, we're going to be wandering around somewhat in the dark. Well, by the time we figure this out, we might all be, you know, zipping around in Elon Musk's whatever he's doing these days, or airplanes might not even be a thing by then. Yeah, my wife likes to torture me by by introducing the idea of teleportation just to see my face. <laughs> oh man, I know it's 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 cold. It's cold. <laughs> there goes the podcast. There goes the podcast. But you know, but it's kind of amazing. Twenty years ago, this December will mark the merger between Boeing and McDonnell Douglas. And think about how far we've come since then. And you know, probably. You know, who could have sat in you know in December 1997 and said, well, 20 years from now, you know, this is how it's going to be, and this is what we're going to be seeing, and I, that again is what makes it an amazing business. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't think you could have called any of this that long ago, and and who knows what we'll be talking about 20 years from now. But that's I mean, <laughs> good food for thought. John, I want to thank you for coming back and trying to bring some clarity to to what is a very unclear situation at this point. Something we'll definitely be following. And and when we do have more, hopefully we can have you back and, and get a little bit more, even more clarity. In due course. And thank you for having me. This was always tons of fun. This has been John Ostrauer, CNN's aviation editor, and, and we've had an illuminating if- unsatisfactory resolution in our conversation about the Airbus C-Series tie-up. John, thanks so much again. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, guys. And we are back. And I think that the conversation with John, if it taught us anything, it's there's so much we do not yet know and so much that's still up in the air. And there are so many angles that we're not even considering, which I'm sure we will be maybe a year or two from now, but it's impossible to see the outcome and and every bit and piece and angle of this story, which has just been crazy so far. For sure, for sure. And and to that end, if you have some insight into the Airbus, C-Series, Boeing, Embraer, MRJ, Comac, anything. If you've got some thoughts on this, please let us know. We're interested to hear what you think about all of this. Podcast at fr24.com or drop us a note on Twitter at FlightRadar24 or Facebook, the same. And we'll get those in on the next episode to to see what your thoughts are. It's almost a little interesting how much I feel like I have personal a personal stake in, in this C-Series because it's just so damn comfortable that I want it to succeed. <laughs> I, I feel like if it were not as comfortable an aircraft, maybe like a more like a seven three, I'd say like, okay, let Boeing kill it. I don't really care. But my God, the thing's just comfortable, and I want it to succeed. Well, it, yeah, and no, it, it, it's no one says it's not a good airplane. I mean, which is the which is the one of the big things there, I guess. But we'll 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 see what happens. What's next? I mean, maybe we should go to Hawaii. You want to go to Hawaii? I will soon, hopefully, but let's talk about it first. We can go to Hawaii now, or we will at some point be able to go to Hawaii on Southwest. They've, after being begged and pleaded and 
cajoled for for years. They they finally announced that they're going to start flights to Hawaii. And and funny enough, you you say they did this after years. I think they announced this by responding to a tweet from two thousand eight yeah. asking them to fly yes, to Hawaii, did. which is just super awesome of them to it, do that. It was so odd because they a they, nine year old tweet. Now now they're getting around to it. They responded to a nine year old tweet at like nine p.m. at night, and everyone's just going, "What's happening?" What is going on? Because the, the announcement came after that, and it was, it was such a strange thing. But they're going to put their, their 737 MAX over over the water. Eventually. Not, not, for, not, not at first, first, but uh, eventually. They have MAXs, but oddly enough, they're starting service with the old regular 800NG. Which will be just as well, I guess. We don't even know when they're starting service. Sure. Uh, because eventually, they're, they're going to begin selling tickets next year. Eventually, what what that means? So, do they start flying in 2018? Maybe, maybe 2019. We don't know. But it's just just, just another airline in the already quite crowded Hawaii market. So exactly. But right, you know, it, it's something that that's been a long time coming. It was just it was just a when, and now it's happened. Let's see, new stuff, old stuff. Alaska retired their combis. From the, uh, from the famous milk run, I think we talked about a while ago. We talked about their replacement aircraft a while ago in a, a few episodes past. We did. The 700. They have their, they have their first 700 in service already. Yeah. So that's uh, the Alaska became the first airline to take a passenger to freighter converted 737-700. So those are replacing their 737-400 combis that they retired last week. So the, the last milk run has been completed. Oh. So that I mean yeah, it's it's sad, but I guess more comfortable now. Yeah, people that I talked to that flew the combi race somewhat regularly on the milk run were not too pleased that they got the oldest, crappiest product left in the Alaska fleet. At least now they get, you know, regular mainline Alaska yeah. aircraft, so they're kinda happy about that. There was no first class on that either, so you know. Well, there there was plenty. Of, there, there was plenty of first class. You just had to, you know, ship yourself in a box. Be a box, right? And we don't recommend that. We talked to Andrew about shipping yourself in a box. Remember, <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Two hundred. I still can't get over that. You know, mm-hmm. ten episodes later, or whatever. Only ketchup. Two hundred twenty-five thousand pounds of ketchup. We'll put a link to that in the show notes if if you haven't caught that episode yet. Breaking news today. A few days ago, an Air Canada flight, more Air Canada news at San Francisco, an Air Canada flight landed after six calls from the tower to go around. They did not go around and they landed. They were so supposed to land. They weren't supposed, supposed to land. supposed to last time when they were supposed right. to land, but in a different place. So, yeah. So, the, the story goes that tower thought there was possibly an aircraft still on the runway. Turned out there wasn't, thankfully. But they had called out to this Air Canada flight six different times to go around. And apparently they didn't hear that. And when the Air Canada flight finally landed, they checked into tower and said, we're having some trouble with our radio. To which the tower controller goes, yeah, we know at this point. So they landed anyway because they claimed they couldn't hear the, the radio was malfunctioning and they couldn't hear the go around calls. And it even got to the point where the tower controller was flashing a red light outside the tower. I, I'm not even familiar with this, but... I yeah, Nor am I. No, but I'm not surprised they didn't see that, because if I'm a pilot landing, I'm not looking at the tower. I'm looking at the runway in front of me. So this this might be, you know, a whole to-do about nothing, just like the, the Air Berlin thing may have been, because if they couldn't hear the go-around call and there was no other aircraft on the runway, why would they assume that they were supposed to go around. So thankfully, nothing ended up happening. And I'm going to do some more reading on this flashing red light thingy. Well, you, I mean, you, you've had a lot of experience with red lights in the past couple of weeks. So that's that's good. I have. I feel like people listening <laughs> might not know what you're talking about. but We'll let people Google that on, on their own. Think Amsterdam. Yeah. So yeah, luckily, or, or thankfully, or, or really, I guess... Because nothing was bad, nothing bad happened. It was just a situation that, that is being investigated once more. And then I, I think we should close the show on, on I, I guess, our last goodbye. 
Well, no, because we'll talk about your trip. No, 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 because I'm going to be and on that's right. the real that's last right. Goodbye. But it's upcoming. Hopefully. The United 747 is doing a farewell tour. And, and we've talked about the United 747 going away and everything like that. But I, I only wanted to talk about it because we've been watching it fly from United Hub to United Hub over the, the past couple days. And it's just struck me as kind of watching 1977 instead of 2017. Because I mean, you know, uh, a United seven four seven flying from oh, Washington, yeah, you know, Washington body, yeah. to Washington to New York, and then New York to Chicago. I mean, it's just you know, watching. I mean, the interior is pretty much nineteen seventy one anyway, fair. so it, it matches. But it, the latest stop today was Newark, which is just kind of weird because I don't think a United seven four seven has served passenger service at Newark in like over a decade or anything. There isn't much history there. Yeah, but the employees are there, and and that's that's what these these flights are all about. Is that you know the employees get to fly, <laughs> fly the plane before it's gone. And in true in true New York fashion, they were supposed to have a farewell flight. I guess Newark to Newark today, it was canceled. We had some bad weather today, and just because they couldn't get it out and back in time, they canceled the farewell Newark flight. Which is just oh, that's a bummer. That does stink. But we had some really atrocious weather today, so can't blame them. Yeah, no, my my dad was supposed to fly out of JFK today and and got canceled. So thanks to the weather. So we'll we'll try again tomorrow. Good luck to him. I think we'll leave it at that before we we get ourselves in any more it's trouble. Probably a good idea with, with any any number of airlines we've talked about today. Episode 17, we'll be back for episode 18. Oh, we can tease a little bit. We're going to have Captain Ken Hoke, who is a, a captain for a large parcel carrying airline. He flies a 757 and 767. Oh. We can talk to him a bit more in depth about the Air Berlin go-around and go-arounds in general. He did a wonderful guest blog post for us on the Flight Radar 24 blog that we can link to in the show notes about what go-arounds are how they work, and why they keep everybody safe. It's a fantastic read. I suggest everyone read it. But we're going to have him on the show to, to kind of dig into that piece a little bit more, hopefully next episode. Yeah, I'm excited for that. been looking forward to talking to him for a long time. We'll get to talk to him about that and anything else. So if you have questions about go-arounds, about airline procedures that you would like us to ask him about, please let us know, podcast at fr24.com, and we'll have those for you in a future episode. And we're really looking forward to talking with him. I am Ian Pechenik. I was Jason Rubinowitz. That he was. And this was episode 17 of Ad Talk. We will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.